I mean, where else in the city do you get to hear the word vomited in the scripture reading? It's fantastic. Good morning. Let's take a moment, we'll pray together, and then look at the scriptures that we're considering. Father, thanks that we can gather here, and thank you for your relentless faithfulness in our lives. We pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us now that we'd be responsive to what you reveal so that we can uh, live and move toward the life for which we're created. So to that end, we commit these moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you shared uh, some near-death experience kind of stories in uh, our time of fellowship here together. And the reason I had you do that is because we're often, in those kind of moments, uh, we're often shaken awake and in a very concentrated period of time, we consider our life, and our priorities, and we may even you know, call out a prayer. My first near-death experience happened when I was about 12 years old, and I was in the back seat of the car driving home to Fresno, California from the, uh, the coast, and my dad uh, pulled out to the left to pass a tanker truck, and then that truck turned left so that we plowed into the tank of a tanker truck. And uh, I remember before, this pre-seatbelt days, but before diving down into the floorboard of the back seat, the last thing I saw was the sign that said, uh, caution, highly flammable on that tanker truck. <laughs> this was not like a milk truck, this was something bad. And I was convinced that the truck was gonna blow up, right? And so then uh, what happens is in that moment before you know you're gonna die and you don't die <laughs> in that little period of time, even at 12, I kind of reconsidered my life. Does that make sense? I call it uh, fiber optic introspection. Like in a very fast period of time, we, like everything is funneled in I, and I think about my family and my parents and my relationship with God and my regrets and how short life is gonna be, and I toss up a prayer, and then we hit the tanker truck, and it didn't explode, thankfully, because uh, I'm still here. But that high-speed introspection thing is something that happens to us. How many have had these kind of near-death experiences in the room? So some have, and some haven't, and some aren't just raising their hands, and that's okay, but uh, however, however it works out, in those moments, um, like we're kind of shaken awake and we, we see things with a, for a moment. We see things with great clarity and that's what's going on in this particular text. And I would say chapter two is a bit of a mystery. Uh, there's debates among theologians regarding, it, I mean, this was written retrospectively. Jonah wasn't writing it as he's in the deep. So we don't know if this prayer is something that happened in just a, a nanosecond as he's swimming around before the fish swallowed him or if it's, if it's something that happened over the course of his time in the fish, we don't exactly, I mean, there's debates. But we know that when, like if you're in the ocean and you think you're gonna drown, that's a significant moment. And you're, and you're shaken awake and you start thinking about the mo like what's most important in life and what are my regrets and that kind of thing. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. And those, I will say, those moments when we're underwater, and that becomes our kind of 
poetic reference point this morning, those moments when we're underwater, when life isn't working for us, when we've lost something, when we have an existential sense that we're out of control, those are the significant moments that God can use to reshape our lives, as we'll see, as, as happens here uh, with Jonah. But before we get into the text, there's one theological component that I want to explain to you by way of context, and it's this in verse 17. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish. And then uh, we who, who study the Bible for a living and get involved into kind of the theological weeds will know that this word appointed leads to great debates among theologians about um, how active God is involved in kind of orchestrating both crises in our lives and solutions to crises. Does that make sense? And there are, like, so there are people on the, on the kind of the Calvinist side of things, and if, you're, if you've grown up in the church, you know what I mean by that, kind of God's in total control of everything, who say, yeah, um, uh, God raised up the storm, and, and the text says that. God raised up the storm, and God appointed the fish. And, and, but then what, I, what sometimes people do over here in the Calvinist community is they say, so everything, that, everything that's happening around us, God's in control of every single thing. Every plane crash, uh, you know, God kind of is there actively making stuff happen. Every rockfall, every avalanche, every storm, every, and then on the plus side, every, you know, every salvation moment, every healing, every, every uh, near-death experience where you, like, where you didn't get involved in an avalanche. And if that's true, then uh, when bad things happen, we're forced to say what? Well, God did it, right? So, so then there's a group on the other side called open theists, and they're like this. God's pretty much not in, in control of any, anything other than the end of the story. Stuff just happens. And then, and then Christians are arguing about this stuff. And I'm going to just employ you as your pastor, don't, okay? Like, just don't argue about this stuff because um, it really doesn't matter that much to people driving by right now. Nobody cares other than us. So, so, so let's, what, when, when there's these debates that go on, what I try and do is fly a little higher above the debate and go, well, what do we know from the Bible? And from the Bible, here's what we do know. We know that sometimes bad stuff happens because God is actively judging. So God dishes out some stuff, and it's called judgment. God dishes out some stuff in Hebrews, and it's called discipline. Sometimes stuff just happens because we sow what we reap, and that also is judgment or discipline. So there's judgment that's active, there's judgment that's passive that just happens because we did bad things and a policeman pulled us over or we got caught and we're in jail or whatever. And, 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 then, and then there's, there's the discipline of God and then there's times when God also intervenes and provides a whale and God intervenes and saves you from an avalanche or something like that. But you don't, here's the thing, you don't know. You don't know if it's discipline, active judgment, passive judgment, and you don't know, like, when you didn't get in the automobile accident, if God caused some, you know, physical thing to happen, or if it just, you just escaped. You just don't know. But here's what you do know. Here's what you, this is the thing. Here's what you do know. You do know that God is able to intervene, and that's why we pray for people who have cancer and different things. And you know that when bad stuff happens, for whatever reason, this is the beauty of the gospel, God can use the bad stuff redemptively. 
And that's all, really all that matters. And that's good news for people driving by because they too have bad stuff happening. So, so we're going to see that. And that's just, that's really not the main point of this text, but I wanted to say that as your pastor because I, I think these arguments are off-putting to people who are considering the claims of Christ. Let's talk about what we do know rather than what we don't know and what we're arguing about, okay? So that, we'll leave that there. But then what we see here is because we know God uses bad stuff, we know God uses this redemptively in Jonah's life. And we see it in a three-act play. Jonah runs and hides, Jonah seeks and finds, and God seeks and finds Jonah, and then Jonah receives and repents. Run and hide, seek and find, receive and repent. Let's look at those beginning with running and hiding. And here's the thing that you see at the beginning. Uh, Just review of chapter one. We know this about Jonah. Jonah knows God, fears God, And so we know this then, knowing God and fearing God is not the same thing as believing God. This is very important we understand at the outset. You ever ever hear this phrase, seeing is believing? I'm here to tell you this morning, seeing is not believing. You can see and not, not believe in the biblical sense of believing. You can say it and not believe it. You can argue about it and not believe it. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, Knowing something intellectually is not the same thing as believing it, not in the Bible. How do we know this? Romans 1, 5 and 16, 26. So Romans is 16 chapters. Sandwiching the book of Romans, there's a phrase. The phrase beginning and the end is this, the obedience of faith. In other words, uh, the reason that Paul wrote Romans is he wanted people not to know differently or have different stuff in their head. The bottom line is Paul wanted uh, these guys to live differently, right? Why? Because so many people are seeing and saying and knowing and arguing and defending and proving and voting, but not actually doing Jesus, if that makes sense. We're not being what God has called us to be. So let's review. What has God called you to be? Well, Galatians 1 says this. It's God's desire to reveal Christ through you right? So when we go scatter here today, so we go to the Mariner game, so we get to go to a sailing boat, so we get to go to Ivers, so we get to go to Dukes, you go to the baptism, you'll go take a nap, whatever you do. Everybody's going to do a different thing, right? Go running. But like at our best, we're out there believing that we are carrying on the work that Jesus began when Jesus was here. Just walking around blessing people, touching people, healing people, forgiving people, crossing social divides. That's our calling, to be filled with Christ so that we pour out in the world nothing less than the life of Christ. And you can know a lot of doctrine and defend a lot of doctrine and even in a kind of intellectual sense give assent to a lot of doctrine, but the Bible says knowing and giving assent to and defending and arguing about is not believing. Believing only shows up when we are actually being the presence of Christ, right? So here's Jonah. He knows God, so do you. He believes God, so do you. He's willing to verbally talk about God's character, so are you. But none of that's the goal. The goal is to make God incarnate, and Jonah was actually called to be God's voice in a particular time and place in Nineveh, 
uh, to make visible in the flesh the character of God, and this call Jonah resists, and so do you. Or at least, let's put it this way, so do I, right? Because I can know all the right things, and still in the way that I actually live my life and present myself to others, misrepresent the character of Christ. Who in the room is married, and you've ever had an argument that you won, but because you were such an idiot in the way that you won, you actually lost? Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, this happens at, this happens at probably all of us in the room at various times where, you know, I, like my wife and I, we, we get, we'll get into things at times, and, and I will win on paper. I will win on paper, <laughs> but later that night, I will know that I actually didn't win, right? Because, like, there's just this chasm here, because though I said the right thing, like, intellectually, in a pure vacuum, I had the kind of the truth in a situation, but the way it was presented, there was arrogance and not love, and then... Uh, it's not I'm, not, I'm not actually being the presence of Jesus in any way. And so this is very important because I, you know, often, I, I understand that from even time that I've spent this summer out speaking to Christians in many places, Christians are concerned that our collective image is that, you know, we're out there arguing with people about everything, about, you know, politics and the incarnation of Jesus and the nature of salvation and, you know, what constitutes sin and what constitutes righteousness. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to quote, quote, unquote, win, but we're, we're winning, but we're not winning. We're actually losing because our calling isn't to argue. Our calling isn't to prove. Our calling isn't to debate. Our calling isn't to build this kind of intellectually airtight case for the deity of Christ. Our calling is to be the presence of Jesus. So, very beginning here, Jonah knows it kind of, believes it intellectually, but he's not actually believing because believing isn't seeing and knowing. Believing is what? Doing. That's what constitutes belief. So in the end, your faith, like you have a doctrinal statement, but your doctrinal statement is not what's on paper. Your doctrinal statement is how you live. Like if you believe in generosity and aren't giving, you don't believe in generosity. If you believe in loving enemies and, you, you know, you're posting about your political opponent, you, you don't actually believe in loving enemies. Like if, it, like if your lifestyle doesn't display the character of Jesus, you and I have missed the point. So that's the first thing. Joe is running and hiding. He knows it all, but he's not living it. Many of us find ourselves there. So then, this crisis happens, the storm, he gets tossed overboard, and it's in the t- being tossed overboard that Jonah seeks and finds, and God seeks and finds Jonah. And so at the beginning here, I want to make this very critical observation. Jonah doesn't seek God at all until he's facing severe loss, because until there's a severe loss, Jonah's character flaws remain hidden even to himself. Does that make sense? Like he doesn't, he's, he's self-righteous. He thinks he's fine because he knows God and he knows doctrine, so he thinks he's doing okay, but he's not doing okay. In uh, J.K. Rowling's Harvard commencement speech, she kind of points to this truth that our character flaws often remain hidden until we face kind of a catastrophic failure or a moment in our lives when we go, quote unquote, underwater. This is what she said in her commencement address, 2008. She said, there was a period in my life when I failed on an epic scale. I had an exceptionally short-lived marriage that had imploded. I was jobless. I was a single parent. I was as poor as it is possible to be poor in modern Britain without being homeless. 
And I had, nothing, I had nothing to do, so because I had nothing to do, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that I knew how to do, which was right. Had I really been succeeding at anything else, I would never have found the determination to succeed in my calling. Do, do you see? Like failure kind of, boom, woke her up. Tommy Caldwell had a failed marriage, and, and then he didn't know what to do, and he said, well, I'm going to do the only thing I can do. I'm going to go rock climbing. He was a climbing bum, basically. And so he, he climbed Dawn Wall in Yosemite, something that had never been climbed before. Uh, and, and then a, a movie's made about it. But the movie isn't just about climbing. It's really about how failure in our lives can lead to redemption if we're humble enough to allow it to do so. David Brooks, in his book, Second, uh, Second Mountain, uh, he talks about his life implosion. He's a New York Times columnist. A life implosion that leads to a faith renewal, a discovery of Christ, very powerful. Like ba when bad things happen, and we find ourselves underwater, uh, the critical thing to ask is, what, like, what are we going to do with that? And the beautiful thing about Jonah is when he's underwater, verse 6, he's cut off from all help. He says in verse 6, I've descended to the roots of the mountains. I can't call out to anybody else. I have no other resource other than God. And so when he's at the very bottom, when there is no other resource, that's when he calls out because he is stripped of self-sufficiency. And only when he's stripped of self-sufficiency does he call out to God. And then, bam, he finds deliverance, right? So now this is really hard in our culture. Why? Because in our culture, and I'm speaking particularly to the Bethany culture and the Pacific Northwest culture and a prosperous culture that most of us in the room uh, realize in various measure, right? Like if you're prosperous, uh, then it's very hard in some ways to feel like you have no other resources than God. Does this make sense? Like you have 10 other resources besides God. You have your you have your Visa card, and you have a credit line, and you have friends, and you have therapists, and you have meds, and you have doctors. And, and I'm not, look, and I'm not against any of that stuff, but I'm saying it's important that we understand that when we're underwater, the, like the first place we're invited to go is God. The first place we're invited to go is God. And then out from that, the second or third place, if you have a second or third place. But the first place is God, and that's very hard for us when we have 10 other things. I remember years ago uh, going to Nepal to, uh, with a medical mission team, and we spent three days in a very poor village where the only, um, like our lodging was this woman had, the only lodging she had to give us was a loft above where the cows, and oh, she had one cow, and two, two goats. That was the extent of their livestock. But one cow, two goats, and then there was a loft. And so we, there were four of us, we slept in the loft, right? But we slept in the loft, and so she had prepared the loft for us by piling copious amounts of hay into the loft. Well, one of the four of us, when uh, we, we find this out, he goes, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have severe hay fever. <laughs> like severe. Like not... not uh, a little bit of hay fever, like it closes my windpipe hay fever, right? I need my, I need, I need Allegra or whatever. And he didn't bring any because it's Nepal and it's January. And he didn't, he didn't think he'd be sleeping on hay. So we had, now 
We have no resources. Do you understand? We have, no, there's, we have none. There's no hotel. There's no plan B. The only thing we can do is pray for our friend who has hay fever, that, that he'll be spared from the effects of hay fever for this one night at least, or it was actually two or three nights. So we, like we lay hands on him. It's kind of terrifying, you know? And we pray for him. And then the next morning he's like this, slept like a baby. Can you pray for me every night? Like, this is amazing. How does, how does this happen, right? So, so uh, buoyed by that, we realize, oh, you know what? There's something to this prayer stuff. Because at home, that would have been the 10th thing, right? A would have been Best Western. B, if not Best Western, you know, a trip to Rite Aid uh, and, and a shot and, and drugs. And I'm not against any of that. But do you understand the inherent liability of our, of our options that cuts us off from prayer? So then, when the day we left, the woman who'd provided hospitality, she comes to us, she said, I need to pray for my cow. And we're like this, first response, pray for your cow. Have you called the vet? <laughs> and she goes, uh, yeah, there's no veterinarian within a four-day walk. I mean, there's no cars in this village. You walk there. No veterinarian with a four-day walk. And even if there was, I don't have any money. And all of our income comes from the milk from this cow that isn't producing milk. So... Would, I'm just asking, and then she quotes, like, we're the missionaries. And she says, you know, it says in James here, pray. <laughs> pray if someone's sick. And I'm telling you, our cow is sick. Would you pray for it? Would, would you just please, come on, pray for the cow. So, we, you know, we literally anoint the cow with oil, and we lay hands on the cow, we pray for the cow. I, I can't tell you what happened to the cow, because we, it was the day we were leaving. I can't tell you what happened. But... I can tell you, we prayed with a degree of confidence we, that we ha- would not have had had we not just prayed for our friend who had hay fever and seen him healed. Man, why are we so slow to turn to the Lord? I, like, wh- why? Like, are you, sometimes we have prayer here on Sundays and I go, are none of you underwater? Is everything just going, you know, swimmingly? That we, we, have, no, we have no needs? Is that what's going on? Or maybe, maybe, the, maybe internally we have enough relationships in our community that there are people praying for us. But I would suggest to you that when there's prayer team members who, and they come forward here, that it's entirely appropriate for you to come and say, you know what, I, would you pray for my marriage? I mean, we're not, we're not where Jonah is, but we're not where we ought to be. We're facing a big decision financially. Would you pray? Um, our neighbors, we want to see our neighbors come to Christ. There's a party Thursday night. Would you pray? It would be beautiful to have a culture uh, of prayer, whereby like when we see ourselves as wanting God to intervene. Why? Because God does. And that's what we learned from the book of Jonah. So then, uh, let's look at some of the prayer of Jonah. It says in verse 2, I cried and you heard my prayer. Right? And then in verse 4, it says, I said, I've been expelled from your sight, but I'm going to look in my, in my prayer. I'm praying toward your holy temple. Now, I'm going to just unpack that for just a moment here. Holy temple. Why? Because in the Old Testament, if you remember, uh, before Christ came, where would God's glory reside? Like, where's the kind of the physical location of God's glory. It's in the temple, but not just in the temple. In the temple within, like the temple is like a set of Russian 
dolls, you know, and there's a, there's a, like, there's the holy place, there's a courtyard, then the inner courtyard, then the temple, then the holy place, and the holy of holies. So it's like this stack thing, and in the very depth, in the holy of holies, that's where the glory is. And so he's, here's Jonah, he says, I'm looking toward where your glory is, God, that's where I'm going. Well, in the Old Testament, actually, he can call out to there, but he can't go there. Because only the high priest can go there, and then only once a year. But when you go to the book of Hebrews, you find that now because of Christ, that, that temple isn't around anymore. So how do we approach the glory of God now? Well, um, if I can find the book of Hebrews, I will tell you. <laughs> Here it is, Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Therefore, uh, br- br- brothers and sisters, we have confidence now to enter the holy place. Well, I thought it was gone. The holy place represents here uh, the presence of God, right? God's glory. We have confidence to be in the presence of the creator of the universe by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, verse 22, draw near with confidence. Like, in other words, when you pray for your neighbors, for your marriage, for your job, for the situation in which you find yourself, when you're underwater, you pray, you don't know how the answer's gonna unfold, but you know this, you know this. God hears your prayer. How do you know? Like, because Christ has made a way for you to have direct access to God. And that's just huge. So when I'm in the midst of a dark place, in the midst of a confusing place, in, in, in the midst of a place of failure, I can always come to Christ and know that Christ will meet me there. This was foreshadowed in the, like the parable, parable of the prodigal son where the guy wanders away and he goes, man, I'm coming home, but I'm just gonna be a slave now. I wonder if dad will even be there. And not only is dad there, but dad is there with open arms <clears throat> and not only open arms, but a, like a party. Why? Because God is, I say this all the time, irrevocably, unconditionally, infinitely for you. So why wouldn't we come to God all the time with every need. Why wouldn't we be uh, people then characterized by prayer, naming our underwater, naming our hope, naming our desire, naming our sin, and turning and turning and turning and turning. That's our calling. Do we have to be tossed off a ship before we pray? Or do I have to face like a sign that says, caution, this truck will blow up on impact before I pray? Like, can't I just learn to pray? Well, he says in verse 5 and 6, I was dying and you brought my life up from the pit. And this too is a picture of life in Christ, right? Because Jesus didn't say, I came to give you a ticket to heaven, or I came to give you a change of destiny when you die, or I came to arm you with intellectual arguments for the, 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 the religion that you'll adhere to. Jesus said, I came to bring you Life, and that word life in John 10, I came to give you a life you don't have. I came to give you a capacity to love your enemies, a capacity to open your wallet, a capacity to love your neighbors, a capacity to, to go to camp and run a mop from eight to eight, you know, for four or five days, a capacity to care for people that are different than you, a capacity uh, to, to heal your marriage and make it a place of intimacy, not a place of tolerance, a capacity to heal your addictions, I, that's what I came for. So uh, this is the life that 
uh, we're invited toward, and sometimes when we're underwater, all we're going to do is get our head, our head above water, but God says, no, look, I don't want to just bring you back on the ship. I want to change your destiny entirely, because I came not just to save you from drowning, I came to change your whole life. So kind of the question on the table when you're underwater is this, like what, kind of, what do you want when you're underwater, when you're calling out to God? Just, hey, look, I got caught in my porn. I just want to go back to where it was before she found my browser. Or I, I just want a job. Or I, look, I just, I just want to get through the night sleeping. Hey, those are the presenting problems, but God doesn't just want to get you back to where you were. God came to give you life, a life you haven't yet attained. We had this prayer time at this place where I spoke last week, and man, people were coming forward for prayer for like an hour. And it wasn't dramatic stuff necessarily, but it was important stuff. People were like, one guy's like this, sold my tech company to Facebook. I don't have to work another day in my life, but I have 40 years left at least, 50, 60. I need to know God's calling. And it's a big deal. Some of you are like this, I'd take that problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, that's his problem, not yours. But it's a problem because God didn't come to make you financially secure. He came to give you life, like more than just money. And then somebody else, you know, our neighbor was a single parent and she died suddenly. And then they have a daughter who doesn't know where she's now going to go to school, who she's going to live with, what's going to happen to the house. And how do we serve our, this survivor? And they're asking for prayer. Another, our marriage is stagnant. Another is an addiction problem. Man, people are, and people don't just want to be f like back on the boat. They want the life for which God has created them. It's the underwater that was the what? Wake up call. Do you see? So how do we become people that ask the right questions? Well, the answer here is uh, act three, receive and repent. So what does that mean? First of all, receive. Jonah called out. And then he receives, what, like he asks, and God gives. But in his case, he doesn't call out until he's facing death. He says, I, basically, I called from the depth of the grave. In other words, the depth of Sheol in the Hebrew language. So Jonah thought he was going to die, and he calls out, and God doesn't just save him, but he transforms him. So my, one of my questions I ask as I'm looking at this text is, man, do I need to face total disaster before I'm transformed? Like, do I have to get kicked off the ship and be drowning before I move toward the life for which I'm created? And I would suggest that the answer is no. And here's, like, if you want to avoid getting kicked off the ship, remember, we live in a fallen world, so bad things are still going to happen regardless. But if you want to avoid kind of that active discipline of God, getting tossed in the ocean and whatever that represents. A life of gratitude can spare you a great deal of pain, actually. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Hey, this is the will of God in Christ. Give thanks in what? Give thanks in everything. Begin to, begin to pay attention to all the myriad of gifts that God has given us all around us and begin to live lives of gratitude because that gratitude can lead us toward the life for which we're created without having to go underwater. Does that, does that make sense? So life of gratitude, what does, that, what does that look like? Well, I think uh, it's, it's pretty simple. 
rather than looking at kind of social media and people have more than you and living a life of regret because you're here and they're there, begin to look at what you have and go, wow, isn't this amazing that I have what I have? I remember both having a posture of gratitude and losing that posture of gratitude when I first left seminary and moved to Friday Harbor and I was a pastor of a church of about 40 people and so a little tiny church, we're meeting in a in the basement of another church, and um, and I, I had a job, and I was not only did I have a job, I was super grateful for the job that I had. I was like, wow. Actually, they're paying me to preach, and people are listening. I mean, I had dreams at first that I would get to church and there'd be no one there, because who wants to listen to me, you know? But then I'd show up and there's like 30 people there and I was like, this is amazing. $1,000 a month, free trailer to live in. Somebody else was cutting the wood and for the wood stove, I didn't even have to cut the wood. I mean, we were on uh, free milk and cheese, whatever that program is called here. And uh, we had a brand new baby and I'll tell you what, I've never been happier. We were, we, were living like, we were living like kings. We, I mean, we'd sit on the deck of our trailer overlooking Puget Sound, and we could see the lights of Port Angeles and squim and that kind of stuff. And I bought a motorcycle to ride over to the west side of the island and eat a sandwich and read Isaiah and look at whale, orca whales jumping in the water. And I'm like, who gets to live this way? Like, this is amazing. And then, within about two years, I lost it all, right? Oh, there's people making more money than me? What's that about? Oh, oh, there's bigger churches? Wait a minute, uh, man, oh, and I live on an island. I hate fairies. By the way, I don't fish. I get seasick. So it's all bad. It's, nothing's changed. I got a raise even, but I'm less happy. Do you, understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? Man, how quickly we lose a posture of gratitude, and gratitude can cause us to receive the life for which we're created without having to be th- tossed overboard. So we want to develop gratitude, uh, and Jonah didn't. So he was tossed overboard. But then the beauty is this, in his tossed overboardness, <laughs> like he repents. And there's a confession. And the confession is in verse 8. Here, this is his conclusion. Those who regard idols, subtext me, Jonah, because I had an idol. My, what was his idol, by the way? His idol was common idol today, racism. That was his idol. Like he hated the Ninevites for reasons that were articulated two weeks ago. I, I, don't, I will not speak to them, man, no way. If I speak to them, I mean, they're, they're anti-Semitic, and I'm Semitic. <laughs> I'm Jewish. They're anti-me. I will not go. Racism. Then this is his conclusion. Those who regard idols forsake their faithfulness. That's been me, says Jonah. But now I'm sacrificing to you with a voice of thanksgiving. The vow which I vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then, as Megan read, the fish vomits Joseph onto the dry, uh, uh, Jonah onto the dry land. And God says to him, you know, when he cleans the puke off his face or whatever, God says, uh, go to Nineveh. And then what does it say? So he went. Like he was down, look, he was down, like he was on the, he was on the ship and then he was off the ship and he was drowning God doesn't just get him back on the ship still hating the Ninevites. God so transforms him that he goes. 
If we're underwater and we turn to God, God isn't just going to bring you back to the ship you were on. God is going to move you toward the life for which you're created. And so this morning, you know, as, we, as Eric comes up here, we're going to close here in just a second. If you're underwater in any way, in any way, like you have a question about your future, you have a, a, a neighbor you're praying for, you, you, you want your children to know Christ, and, and you need to know the next step to take, then w- would you come and pray? Oh, but there's already people to pray for me. My hope is that we develop a culture of prayer here because even if others are praying for you, what, like what are you saying by not coming forward? Are you saying, that's too much prayer. I just can't handle that much prayer. I only need, I only need one person praying for me. No, what you're saying is, I don't want anyone to know that I'm underwater. Hello, we're all underwater. Are you with me? So can we develop that culture where we with Jonah call out to the Lord so that we can move toward the life for which we're created? Let's pray. Father, meet us now as we respond. Our desire is to name what we want to see you do and be open to you doing not just that but even more as you did in Jonah's life. May you so do in ours. We call out to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.